0: My name is Austin. Uh, I'm on the team here. If you're asking yourself, hey, where's Trevor this morning? Uh, Trevor is getting some R&R with some friends and made it home today not, uh, to watch some football with his family. And so he's getting some much needed rest. I uh, mean, we're thankful kind of week in and week out for Trevor's teaching. And so if you're hoping to see him this morning, I'm sorry that you're stuck with me. But I promise I will make it short this morning. If this is your first time, my name's Austin. Uh, It's so good to be with you. Uh, If you're joining us online, gosh, we we hope you can make it to join us soon. You might be checking us out or at home feeling under the weather. But whether you're here on site or you're online with us, we're simply a community that is committed to a Los Angeles that has been shaped and changed by the life-changing power of the gospel. And so week in and week out, we come before the scriptures because we think in them is the life-changing power of the gospel. It's our gateway to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so if you've been with us for some time, you know, beginning this past fall, we were looking through the minor prophets as they were recognizing the pain and the dysfunction that Israel was in, but as they looked forward to the hope of Jesus, as they looked forward to the hope Of a Messiah. And so a few months ago during the month of December, we remembered the advent or the arrival of that Messiah. And so now we're in an in between season between Advent and Lent. Some folks call it Christmas Tide, some folks call it the season of Epiphany, but it's really this idea that Jesus is being revealed to the world. And as he's revealed to the world and we look through the Gospels, it thrusts us into Lent as we approach Holy Week and remember the final hours, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're tracking through a lot of this in the Gospel of John. Uh, John makes it really clear in his Gospel why he writes to his audience. John says, I- I'm writing this that you might actually believe, that you might put your trust and your hope in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And so when we come before the text, we're coming hoping and expectant that we'll be shaped and formed in the kinds of people that trust Christ more, that put more of our hope, more of our allegiance in him, and that Christ would breathe life into us, And so if you're with us this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Again, it's John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. If we're in a larger series on the Gospel of John, this mini-series that we're in is really called the Final Discourse of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is with his disciples in a room celebrating the Last Supper, and he goes into an extensive time of teaching with the disciples. This will be his final extensive time to teach the disciples until he heads to the Garden of Gethsemane and surrenders himself to Jewish and Roman authorities. And so we'll begin in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, but I actually want to start with this. Man, there is no place like home. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm kind of a I guess a resident of California now, but any chance I get to go home to Oklahoma, it is always this expectant, excited weekend or week that I'm going to spend with my family. It's not so much that it's in Oklahoma. It's not so much my address and the house that I grew up in, but it's all the feelings that come along with being home. Ideally, when we think of home, we think about a place in which we feel known, A place in which we deeply know others. A place in which we feel safe. A a place in which we grew up and we have a kind of shelter or a covering provided to us from our parents. Not just physical, but relational and financial and spiritual. When I go home, it is this safe place in which I wake up to the sound of coffee in the morning that I didn't make. And I eat breakfast that I did not cook And I spend time with people, my folks, in a way that all the pressure is off. Ideally, we reminisce and dream about home because it's a place of joy. And it's a place of peace. And it's a place where everything, ideally, when it's at its best, life just feels like it's put together. When we transition to John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is going to use a lot of imagery of a house. So we begin in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and we really shouldn't look past this first sentence. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be anxious. Don't let your hearts be in doubt or be in turmoil. If we're not careful, we'll just kind of read past this verse. But this verse really gives us a really clear perspective into how the disciples are feeling at this moment. In fact, when we look back at all the events that have led up to this, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 12. After he raises Lazarus from the dead, he comes into Jerusalem uh, for what we would call Gosh, Palm Sunday in which the people come to meet Jesus and they're essentially crowning him as king by laying down their cloaks and laying down these palm branches. And so by every indicator, as the disciples have been following Jesus, as they enter Jerusalem, this ought to be a triumphant moment. This is the moment the disciples have been waiting for. Jesus has been teaching. He has been performing miracles. Now he's come from Galilee down to Jerusalem to be the king that folks are claiming him to be. And as they make it into Jerusalem, and they make it into this room to celebrate this supper, all of a sudden the the tone turns a little dark. Jesus begins to predict his death, which the disciples would say, no, 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 let's not not talk about death. Let's talk about life. Let's not talk about things falling apart. Let's talk about the kingdom that we think is about to be inaugurated. And then Jesus in chapter 13 talks about this idea of him washing his disciples' feet. The disciples are thinking, no, 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 you shouldn't wash our feet. We should wash yours because you are about to be king." After that, Jesus predicts His betrayal. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. All of this is happening, and you can feel the tone in the room becoming very troubled. The disciples thinking, "This isn't going the way we were expecting it to go. Have we backed the wrong man? Is trouble in store for us now because trouble's in store for you." Jesus can sense this, that they're sitting at the table. And he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. But instead, believe God. Believe in me. Jesus has this sense right after he says, I recognize you're anxious. I recognize your soul is in turmoil. I recognize your heart is troubled. But the best anecdote for that is faith. Faith in God. Faith in Christ. And so he continues in verse 2. He says, my father has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Uh, When we talk about this idea of a a father's house and there being rooms, uh, some scholars that have done some archaeology in this area of the world at this time, it would actually look a lot like this. It would look when you'd go to a father's house. In the middle, there was a kind of courtyard. And then there was a room that might have been the master's quarters where mom and dad lived. And then as their first son would get married, they would add on a room around the courtyard, and the son would bring his wife, and they'd start their family in the room next to mom and dad. And as the next son would get married, they would add on another room. It was this idea that whenever there were rooms, it was being added on to the father's house. Not separate homes, not separate quarters, but connected to mom and dad's house, still under their covering, under their gracious authority, under their provision and sharing in the joy of the father. And so Jesus is using this kind of imagery that there are many rooms in my father's house and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place, how are you, sir? Great to see you. Man, it is, it's hot, and this is wonderful. Can you give Tom a round of applause? My eyes were feeling salty. Woo! Thank you, Tom. Verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, and I'm gonna take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. This is a bit of, again, wedding imagery. In the first century, if you were going to go get married, you'd go meet up with the family of the bride that you we were hoping to take, and you would arrange this sense of courtship of, hey, we're going to arrange this marriage. And once all the details were finalized, the soon-to-be husband would speak to the family and say, now I'm going to go back to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you, my soon-to-be bride, and I'm going to come back and get you, and we will go back and share in the joy of my father's house. It reminds me of them. Got some friends whose folks uh, recently took place in the great exodus out of California. They moved to Idaho and bought a bunch of land and bought a bunch of space, and they've got a home, and they essentially started to build a compound. They've got the main house, and they've got homes connected to it. And often they tell my friend, hey, when you and your wife are ready, there's a place for you here. And we'll come down, and we'll help you pack, and we'll bring you up, and you can share in all of this joy. This is the kind of image that Jesus is talking about. The disciples are troubled. They're anxious. They're in turmoil. And Jesus gives the disciples a promise of a place a place in the Father's house that they can enjoy. And so one of my questions for us this morning is, are we putting more trust and more of our hope and more of our peace in the home that we have here or the home that God promises to us? Is the majority of our hope from the shelters of life and the storms that come in the home that we're building here or the home and the room that Christ, even right now, is preparing for you? Here's some encouragement to you. If you're in financial hardship and things are really, really difficult, know that Christ is preparing a place for you. I mean, if your relationships are in trouble and your marriage is on the rocks, recognize that this is not the final place, but Christ is preparing a room for you. You may be in a season where you feel isolated and alone because your friends and family have, move. But no, this is not the final dwelling for us, but Christ, even right now, is preparing a place for you, and he will return to bring us home with him. The text continues. This is verse 5. Thomas said to him, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and Lord, we don't know the way. This is on the heels of verse 4, which Jesus has just said, you know both of these things. Thomas speaks up for all of them and says, "Nah." We don't know. And then Jesus has this famous line in verse 6. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. Why? Because you have seen Christ. You've seen Jesus Uh, This is an interesting moment. This phrase is um, popular if you've been around Christianity for a while. This idea that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. Lots of ink has been spilled on what this means, and there's many things that can be true about it. Uh, One of the things that some scholars point out in this passage is that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's actually a reference to Torah. It's this idea that in the first century when Jewish rabbis and those that were worshiping would reflect on Torah, they would say, Torah is the way to God. Torah is the truth about how the world actually is, that the God of Israel is the God of the whole world. And Torah is life, life to our bones and life to our relationships. And here you have Jesus a Jewish rabbi speaking to his Jewish disciples saying, do you want to know the way? Let me tell you, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In other words, Jesus is the embodiment of Israel's scriptures in himself. Uh, It makes me think of some folks that have um, been reflecting on art the last hundred years. They talk about the the importance of art in the world around us. Uh, And one philosopher that's Speaking about art, says life is full of all of these abstractions about various things, and art gives us a visual, concrete example of all those abstractions together. In other words, and these are a a bit in jest, you might say, What does it mean to be American? Go through and say, well, based on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and a little bit of history, and you can create all these values and virtues of what it might feel like to be an American, or you can look at a mural of George Washington crossing the Delaware River. You say, that's what it looks like to be American. That's what it means. Maybe ask yourself, what is it what does it mean to be a man? And you can come up with all kinds of virtues and values. Well, men do A and men do B and men do C and men do D. And you can get this long list or you can watch a John Wayne movie. And you can say, that's a man. That is a man's man. There's a similarity here. When you get to Torah, there's all these values and virtues of what Israel should be like, what they should do, how they should act. And you could come up with, I think, the, you know, Israelites at this time had about 653 laws. And Jesus says, just look at me. I'm the embodiment of all that. You you want to know what to say? Look at me. You want to know how you should act? Look at me. You want to know how you ought to pray, listen, and hear me? Jesus is the embodiment of the Torah, and he's speaking to his disciples, saying as such, That's why these gospels are so precious to the Christian community. When we look at the life of Jesus, how he treated people, how he talked about the kingdom of God, how he prayed and acted in faith, how he surrendered his life, we are getting a very clear picture into the word of God summarized into one person. Jesus, the living an embodied word of God. So when you read the Gospels, we're getting the clearest picture of what Jesus is like and as such, what the Father is like. So we started this by saying, first, there is a place for disciples. There's a place for disciples and our final place is not here, but it's in the Father's house, a household of joy and peace and covering and provision. Second is there's a person for disciples, and that person is Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We ought to look no further than Jesus to know how we ought to make our way through life. The truth about the world, that it is a God-created, God-soaked, God-bathed, God-headed world, and we are simply living in it as his creatures. And third, that the word of God is life. Life. To our bones. The third and final thing we're going to talk about this morning, because there's a lot of salt in my eyes, is this, that for disciples, there's a promise for disciples. The disciples in this moment, they're troubled, they're in turmoil, they're, they're anxious, and Jesus gives them this promise. We're going to continue in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Uh, Philip is uh, probably looking for another theophany scene. Theophany scene is just these moments of kind of mystic, radiant glory in which you have this grand vision of God. Uh, Philip and the disciples have had a a previous theophany, some of them have, in which there was a transfiguration. Uh, And Philip is saying, we'd like one of those, but let us see the Father. And Jesus continues in verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has had their own theophany of what the Father's like. Anyone who looks at me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. In other words, every hand, every, every work that Christ put his hand to, every healing, every miracle, was actually the Father's work through him. Verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Or at least watch this. At least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. If it's hard on my own word to believe that the Father and I are one, look at that moment in which I healed the man that was sick. Look at that moment in which I opened blind eyes. Look at that moment in which I fed the 5,000. Look at that moment in which I raised Lazarus from the dead and come to that conclusion that the Father and I, that were one. That's the second time this word works is mentioned. The works that Christ does, it's actually the Father through him. You can believe the evidence of the works to believe that Christ and God are the same. And then he continues in verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, not whoever believes in me is from some geographic area of the world, not whoever believes in me from a certain generation, not whoever believes in me from a certain socioeconomic status, but whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. What an interesting thing that Jesus says. Whoever believes in me will do the works. Not, they got a chance of doing the works. Not, they might do the works. Not, hopefully, they will do the works. Jesus has this sense of command that anybody who believes will do the works I have been doing. And watch this. They will do works that are even greater than these things. Why? Because I'm going to the Father. There's this sense that when Jesus ascends... The disciples are filled with authority. We'll get to that later on in this series. Verse 13. And watch this. This is is the promise, which is interesting. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. Why? So that the Father may be glorified. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And he summarizes it here in verse 14. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I love this idea, kind of going back to the center of it in verse 12, that, you know, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. It reminds me, actually, of the Super Bowl (laughs) this afternoon. Is every coach that's coaching his players aspires that his players will do more and get more and win more than they did? A coach's goal is not to... Coach up the players just enough but not to surpass them. The coach's goal is always to make those linemen the best possible linemen they can be, even a better lineman than the offensive line coach. That coach is always trying to train up the quarterback to be the best quarterback he can be and even a better quarterback than the quarterback's coach. There is this idea here that in the Super Bowl, coaches are coaching up their players to be better than themselves. And they're trying to show the way, blocked like this. Throw, like this. Catch, like this. In a sense, Jesus has been coaching up his disciples. Pray, like this. Fast, like this. Teach, like this. Care for the poor and the outcast, like this. And just so you know, when I'm gone, you'll do even greater things than these. I went back to the the Gospel of John and looked at those greater things. And these are some of the, just some of the miracles that Jesus had spoke that happened in the Gospel of John. At the very beginning, Jesus turns water into wine. Later, Jesus heals a sick person, an official son. Later, Jesus heals a man born crippled so he can make it to the waters. Later, Jesus feeds 5,000. Later, Jesus walks on water. Later, Jesus opens blind eyes. And later, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And here it is just on the tail end of that. Jesus says, and greater than these things will be your works. That really kind of messed with me this week. It messed with me about what kind of expectation do I come before the Lord with? What kind of faith or trust do I come before the Lord with that when I ask things that are in his name for the purpose of glorifying God, that he will do them? I'm glad I'm not telling you that Jesus is going to do it because Jesus said he's going to do it. (laughs) Because what a bold promise. Whoever believes will do these things. Reminds me of Mia speaking of going home, Asking my parents for things as a kid. I loved going to my parents and asking them for $5 to go to the movies. Asking them for some breakfast in the morning. Asking them for a bicycle at Christmas time. Because I knew the goodness and the generosity of my parents. That if it was in the right time, and if it was in the right season, and it was in line with our values, my parents were going to do it. My parents were never going to withhold food from me unless it was ice cream at 11 p.m. Not the right time, not the right season, probably not in line with our values. If I'm asking for a baseball bat during football season, uh, Austin, probably not the right time, probably not the right season, we'll get you a football instead. So there was this sense with my parents that they always wanted to give me what I was asking for. But they always imagined and their yes was always in line with the right time, the right season, and in line with our values. Jesus bakes this in here. He doesn't say, whatever you ask, I'm just going to give it to you. He says, whatever you ask in my name. In other words, the requests that you have are in line with the work that I've been doing, in line with my vision, in line with my values, in line with the way that I've spoken about the kingdom of God. And when you ask, it isn't for your own glory, but it's that God might be glorified. Even when I'm praying and I'm thinking to myself, is, does this prayer request glorify God? Is this in line with what the name of Jesus represents and what he encouraged us to? Even if all those boxes are yes, I can at times feel my confidence waning. I can at times feel my trust and my hope that he will do it wane. And so I want to ask you, when you come before the Lord with a request, in the name of Jesus, that's in line with what he says about the kingdom of God and with a request that glorifies the Father. With what kind of expectation and trust are you coming before the Lord with that he will do it? That your request will not return to you void. Part of me even is struck by the church at large. As a church, how expectant. And confident do we come before the Lord with that He will provide for what we ask for, if it's the right time, right season, and in line with that. And so those are the those are the three things in this passage. That for every disciple, if your heart is troubled and if it's distressed, know that this is not the end for you. But Christ is preparing a place for you in the Father's house filled with joy and peace and provision and covering, and know that Jesus gives you himself. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. If you want to know what the world is actually like and how we ought to journey through this world, look no farther than Christ, the embodiment of the scriptures. And finally, there's a promise for you that if you believe, whether you're Risen Junior or you're one of our more seasoned believers here, that Christ says he will do what you ask for if it's in his name, and if it glorifies the Father. And so let's pray. Father, we are struck by this passage as, um, wow, really, really challenging and really difficult. So often we want to just hoard here and and build up shelter here and build up our house here. But your encouragement to disciples is the better, more joyful house is the house to come in the Father's house. And Lord, I think about this idea that you've given us your person that so often I'm tempted to go look for truth in other books or look for the best way through life in some self-help book. But Lord, I can come to you. I can look at you and you're the way through this life. You're the truth and you're the life. And finally, Lord, for this church, including myself, would you help us to pray with more confidence? As young as Risen Junior and as old as folks that are retired, would you help us to come before you with requests in your name that glorify the Father, would you help us to pray with boldness and with courage that you will make good on your word to do anything that we ask. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray.